But he doesn't. Well, how do we make sense of that? Well, one possibility is that it never happened. And that what these guys are reporting is just some rumor that got out of hand amongst a populace that is hungry for anti-Roman propaganda. I mean, stuff like that happens today all over the world wherever you don't have a free press established. This stuff kind of stuff happens. Another possibility is that based upon something, maybe there was a riot, got out of hand, maybe there was bloodshed associated with the riot, but the location, as the rumor traveled through the population, the, 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 the rumor changed the location to the temple. Again, for propaganda value. Well, let's look at how Jesus responds. Verse 2, Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Jesus' answer seems to assume that these messengers wanted wanted to open up a theological discussion with Jesus about the relationship between sin and suffering. And that's not impossible, but it is actually very unlikely. And we have no reason to assume that that's what they wanted. Almost certainly, what's actually happening is that the messengers are trying to test Jesus. They're judging him. Jesus can be condemned if he makes a public denunciation of the Roman authorities, and he can be condemned if he doesn't. Really, the implied question is, whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? One of the reasons why I think that that's actually what is happening is that in all four Gospels, when people try to trap Jesus, they end up trapped. And when people try to judge Jesus, they end up judged. And that's exactly what happens here. So suddenly, the focus is off what happened in Jerusalem and on the hearts of the men who brought this news. Verse 3, no, I say to you, But rather, unless you might repent, you all likewise will perish. This is not likely to go down well. Those who are trying to rally support for their cause often take it badly when they're told to repent. Uh, Those who are crying out for justice and saying things like, Join our side, brothers. We will fight for justice and our cause is true. They generally don't take it well when they're told to repent. And that actually, really, their hearts might be evil. They don't take it well when they're told to repent, which means turning back to God. But what we see here is that that Jesus is not interested in politics. Instead, he wants to talk about something important. And What's important is that as human beings, we're constantly looking for the locus of evil. Where is all this evil coming from? Who is responsible for mucking up my life? To whom can we say, you're ruining my life? And we are restless until we find some other human beings we can blame. Then we have a cause and a crusade, and we can join other like-minded people to, to join our crusade. It's the Romans. It's the Jews. It's the Muslims, it's the Christians, it's the communists. Pauline Hansen absolutely typified the phenomenon when she said, I believe we are being in danger of being swamped by Asians. 
Interestingly, as soon as she said this, I identified Pauline Hansen as the problem. Pauline Hansen, not Asians, was the evil from which Australia needed to be saved. What Pauline Hansen and I had in common was that we were both wrong. Because the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart, and Jesus is not willing for us to forget this. So that's the first thing he does. He rejects their agenda and inserts his own. The second thing he does is he breaks down the link between sin and suffering. There is no one simple relationship between sin and suffering. All simplistic answers, including the suggestion that sin and suffering are not linked, are to be rejected. There is a relationship, but it's complex. All simplistic answers can be rejected. The third thing that Jesus does is that he shifts the goalposts, doesn't he? Um, I mean, he's not saying, unless you repent, you too will be killed by Pilate on your next visit to Jerusalem. He's now referring, he has to be referring to some different kind of perishing. This type of perishing is a real threat that no one can escape. And fourth, he throws in another example. Verse 4. All those 18 upon whom the tower fell in Siloam, and they were killed. And do you think that they were worse offenders than all other people dwelling in Jerusalem? No, I say to you, but rather, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Now, in Hebrew thought, evil exists in two forms, two basic forms. On the one hand, there is maleficent, personal, conscious evil. Human or angelic beings who set their will in opposition to the will of God. Pilate, in the first example, knows God's will but ignores it. There is another type of evil at work in the world. On the other hand, impersonal evil, randomness, chaos, chance, sometimes figuratively presented in the Bible as the sea and the breakers of the sea. The bad luck that the tower in Siloam didn't choose to fall because it wanted to make people suffer. It didn't stand there thinking, oh, goody, there they all, all grouped together. Let's fall now. It was just a chance happenstance. It was an unlucky event. It was a freak accident. In, in now, in biblical thought, God is totally sovereign, totally and completely sovereign over both forms of evil, the personal and the impersonal, but they do exist. And our struggle is that most of the time when we see them, we can figure them to be immensely more powerful than us, because they are. But God is sovereign over all of it. And so again, the same conclusion. No, this has nothing to do with whether those people were worse sinners than anyone else. But again, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And again, Jesus can't be threatening them with a drastically reduced lifespan owing to freak accidents. He's not saying unless you repent, you too will be crushed by a tower in Siloam. He must be using the word perish in a qualitatively different way. So what does he mean? Well, fortunately, he gives us a parable, and he told this parable. 
A certain man had planted a fig tree in his vineyard, and he came seeking her, but she had none. And he said to the vineyard worker, Look, for three years now I'm coming, seeking fruit on this fig tree, but I'm not finding it. Dig her out, for why should she use up the ground? But answering, he said to him, Lord, forgive her also this year, until whenever I might dig around her and I might throw on manure. And indeed, she might make fruit in the future, and if not, definitely you will dig her out. Now, Jesus, the beauty of this is that Jesus wants us to interpret his lesson. What is his lesson? Well, his lesson is that unless you repent, you too will all perish. He wants us to interpret his lesson through the lens of this parable, and he wants us to interpret this parable through the lens of his lesson. They're both going to help us work out what he is saying on this occasion. Let's start with some cultural information, just, just a little bit of stuff that might help us. Um, firstly, to our ears, it might sound strange that a fig tree was planted in a vineyard, but in Israel and in the Middle East, um, uh, then and today, it's common practice to put fig trees in vineyards. And the two things are commonly mentioned together. As in, for example, you might have noticed the Micah reading mentions grapes and figs together. So that wasn't unusual for them. What was unusual is to hear a rabbi say manure. Uh, They would not have been expecting Jesus to say manure. Uh, This is the only time this word appears in the New Testament. And please note that it's not a rude word. Manure, as an English word, captures both the meaning of the word as well as its degree of obscenity, which is very low. It's not a rude word. It's just not the kind of word you expect a rabbi to use in pious theological debate. We can also see that the word is superfluous. The vineyard worker could have said, I might dig around her and and prune her, or I might dig around her and and give her extra water. The word's superfluous. Why does Jesus use it? Well, many suspect that when Jesus said this, his audience immediately burst out laughing. Understanding that the parable was directed at the people who had brought the news and that they may not, have not, may not have reacted well to the suggestion that they needed to repent, people might have immediately laughed and started whispering, sorry, who, who's throwing manure on who here? An extreme, this is speculative, but an extremely tense situation, one which most people wouldn't have expected to survive, could have been diffused by this comic element. So that's some cultural background. Now to the Old Testament, and we'll get some scriptural background. That'll really help us work out how Christ's hearers would have heard this parable. And, of course, one of the first things to recognize is that the Old Testament is constantly using the fruitfulness of trees or their their barrenness as an analogy for people. Uh, With respect to the nation of Israel, the prophets of the Old Testament regularly use the image of a vineyard or a fruit tree to picture the nation of Israel, as either fruitful or fruitless. Um, And we've already heard this morning from the book of Micah, where the prophet Micah brings to the ears of God's people, God's lament, God's crying, because his people are not bearing the good fruit he desired, which in context is a fair and just society based on compassion. Instead, This nation of his is characterized by corruption, injustice, oppression, and the misuse of power. Families are also in breakdown, divided, rebellion, betrayal instead of loyalty 
and faithfulness. The the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, contains an extended parable about a vineyard, a vineyard that has received the best possible care and attention. And yet the vineyard produced no good fruit, only bad. And we're told in Isaiah uh, chapter 5, verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord, sorry, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness but heard cries of mercy. Sorry, he heard cries of distress. So given that there's this long-standing prophetic tradition, a good question for us is, how does Jesus depart from that prophetic tradition of seeing the nation of Israel as God's vineyard? In what ways is his story different? Well, uh, when we ask that question, we see two things straight away. Firstly, in the parables of, of Isaiah and Micah, unfruitfulness is judged immediately. The, the bad vineyard is immediately in trouble. These are harsh stories of impending judgment. Jesus' story, by way of comparison, is actually quite soft and gracious. There is grace. The tree is forgiven, and more than once. There is mercy. Saving work done on behalf of the tree. Soil improvement and care. Now, the tree must respond to the saving work done on her behalf, or there'll be judgment. But the threat of judgment is left hanging in the parable, a parable with no ending. So it's, it's a nice story, really, by way of comparison. It's, there's a lot of grace in it. Secondly, in Jesus' parable, it's not the whole vineyard that has been unfruitful, but rather only one fig tree. This is about an individual fig tree. It would seem that Jesus' words at least on this occasion, are not aimed at the entire nation, but probably aimed at a select group of people, perhaps the leadership of the nation, or really, more likely, this is a parable aimed at the men who've brought the news from Jerusalem. Now, with respect to, to people being fruitful, the nation of Israel or people in general, I reckon it's important that we look closely, actually, at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, And if you'd like to flip back, it's on page one of the Pew Bible. It's worth reading these verses again, and maybe we'll see them this morning in a slightly different way. Because God said, verse 26, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful. (laughs) That's right. Be fruitful. And increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So isn't that wonderful? Right from page one in the Bible, human beings were made to be fruitful. And looking at Genesis chapters one and two in the context of the Old Testament, we can say a lot about what it means to be fruitful. Uh, To be fruitful, it means every human being working for and with God in his image and likeness, copying God with God. 
Being fruitful means each person with their own unique, distinct personality, having nevertheless exactly the same character as everybody else, which is the character of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Being fruitful means human society establishing the reign of God on earth and bringing the order of God as originally manifest in the Garden of Eden, bringing the order of God to the whole creation, to the whole world as it expands. Being fruitful means the creation of human society based on marriage as the thing which creates new families into which children are born in a loving and secure environment in which they learn about God so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, to quote Habakkuk. And lastly, but not leastly, Being fruitful means serving and preserving the creation to the glory of God and responding to the creation with worship directed to the Creator. So we've surveyed the cultural and biblical background. Let's go back to the parable and let's start thinking carefully about the parable. The first thing I want us to recognize about this parable is that it's not an allegory. It's not an allegory where each element stands for something. The tree does not stand for people. It's just a tree. And the gardener does not stand for Jesus, nor does the vineyard owner stand for God. We'll run into trouble if we think this story is an allegory with these two characters representing the father and the son. No, it's not an allegory, but it is an analogy, an extended metaphor that invites comparisons. So as a metaphor, it has a vehicle, a tenor, and one or more points of similarity. Let's review what those words mean. Firstly, vehicle. Have we still got the slides? That's great. What is the vehicle? What is the vehicle that Jesus uses to transport his meaning? Well, the vehicle is a story about a tree that is a waste of space and resources. And so at the conclusion of the story, its existence is in jeopardy. That's the vehicle. Secondly, the tenor. What is this story about? Well, it's about repentance. This is a story that explains the statement, unless you repent, you too will all perish. And thirdly, what are the points of similarity? What are the points of similarity between repentance and the story about an unfruitful fig tree? Well, in our case, there are clearly multiple points of similarity. Firstly, Like the tree, we exist for a reason. We're designed with a purpose. We exist in order that we might bear fruit, analogically speaking, as we've just seen. We have no independent right of existence. If we refuse to be in right relationship with God, we cannot serve him. We cannot bear fruit. We have no legitimate place in his world. We're just using up the space. Secondly, like the tree... There is grace and mercy. There is forgiveness and God's saving work on our behalf. But if we are to be fruitful, we must respond to his saving work done on our behalf. Thirdly, like the tree, we are all recipients of God's generous provision. We have what we need in order to be fruitful. Thirdly, as with the tree... God's patience is not limitless. 
or rather, technically speaking, God's patience is unlimited and unlimitable, but he has chosen sovereignly to limit it. The time for responding is not eternally open-ended. Grace doesn't continue forever. Not this grace time. And so, fifthly, like the tree, the time for responding will come to an end, then judgment. Six, like the tree, we are therefore being called to respond to God's saving work on our behalf. We are being called to respond to Christ's death on the cross with repentance and thereafter bear the fruit of repentance. Seventh, like the tree, existence is in jeopardy. The unproductive tree will be cut out. It will be dug out. Unless we repent, we too will all perish. There are also that seven points of similarity. I, I can think of at least two points of dissimilarity. It's worth noting what they are. Unlike the tree, the existence that is in question is our, is our eternal existence. It's not the same jeopardy. The tree is under threat of its mortal life being terminated. Seeing as Jesus is clearly not threatening his audience with a radically reduced lifespan by means of catastrophe, for if that was his meaning, his teaching would be self-contradictory, he must be referring to our eternal existence. That's what's in jeopardy for us. And secondly, unlike the tree, our salvation is, our saving response is not in bearing fruit, but rather in repentance. This is a parable about repentance. That is, turning back to God, because the lesson is, unless we repent, we too likewise will all perish. The lesson is not that unless we bear fruit, we will all perish. Repentance and bearing fruit are causally linked, but they're not the same thing. Okay, let's start summing up. The, the parable actually is gentle and kind. It's full of elements of grace and mercy. But the threat of judgment hangs. How does this parable answer these men who come, coming from Jerusalem, and talk about the blood of the worshippers mixed with their sacrifices by Pontius Pilate? How are they answered by this parable? Well, actually, they came with the question, whose side are you on, ours or theirs? And Jesus' answer, in effect, is... Fall in behind me or go to hell? Although he's a lot more gracious than that. That's in essence his answer. They came ready to judge Jesus. Actually, Jesus is Lord and Savior. Repentance is recognizing that and confessing that and coming to God through Christ his Son. They came ready to reject the one through whom eternal life comes. That just leads to eternal death. And so Jesus' point is that unless they turn to him, they are the ones of under the threat of judgment, not him. That's what it meant to them. What does it mean to us? How are we going to apply this today? Well, first and foremost, have you repented? Or to use our language, have you become a Christian? Have you asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Because if you haven't, you're under threat of eternal destruction. If you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus, then deal with that today. 
speak to me afterwards if you're unclear about how to do that. That's obviously primary take-home point from this parable today. Secondly, whenever let's not make the same mistake as the men who came from Jerusalem. Whenever we are tempted to find the locus of evil in the hearts of others, whenever we're tempted to turn and say it's their fault, it's the Muslims, it's the Mexicans, or whoever it might be, stop. They are conspecifics. If you'll pardon me using a word from my zoology background. They're the same species as you. They're conspecifics. They're not the problem. We are all the same species. They are not the enemy. The, pro- the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And when we are tempted to judge others, we ourselves will be under the threat of judgment. Thirdly, as repentant people, as people who have turned to God through Jesus Christ, we, people who belong to Jesus, we need to attend to bearing fruit. And, and how do we do that? Well, just some very brief words on how we bear fruit. Well, actually, I've got two bits of really amazingly good news to tell you this morning. And here's the first one. Um, uh, Jesus promises us in John chapter 15 that if we hold on to him, if you're a Christian, you are bearing good fruit. That's Christ's promise to you. So, so if you're a Christian and you're holding on to Jesus, you have, are, and will bear good fruit. That's his promise. That's wonderful. Every Christian bears fruit in her or his character when we become more and more like Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit comes from a tree, I think. Um, No, it comes from the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. What we sang about as we copy Jesus will bear fruit. We bear fruit when we attend to the mission of the church, our prophetic ministry together baptizing and discipling the nations. We bear fruit when, out of consciousness of God, we bear up under unjust suffering. We bear fruit when we defend the cause of the poor, the widow, the alien, the forgotten, the neglected, the oppressed, the marginalized, the neglected. We bear fruit when we attend to them. We bear fruit when we do what we can to strengthen and safeguard families as the place where children are born and raised in loving safety and security, learning about God with God. And we bear fruit when we take our place, whatever that place may be, when we take our place in the ordering, governing, and building up of society by faith and with prayer. And whatever we do, whether whether we're uh, we're, uh, uh, collecting rubbish or selling used cars from a used cars lot or or, um, administering offshore investment accounts or ironing T-shirts, or um, uh, washing nappies, or whatever it is that we do, or mucking out stables, whatever it is we do, we as Christians work at it with all of our heart as working for the Lord, since we know that we, when we do this, will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ we are serving. We're going to bear fruit. Naturally, we bear fruit. Uh, That's Jesus' promise uh, to us, and uh, we were made for it, and it's amazingly good news. Praise God. But uh, the second bit of amazingly good news is that those who aren't Christ will certainly not perish. That's the second bit of really amazingly good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son 
that whoever believes in him will certainly not perish, but have eternal life. The Lord be with you.